You're listening to audio from Shandon Baptist Church. If you'd like to check out more resources from us, please visit our website at shandon.org. Professor Glenn Lowry, who I believe we have a picture of, is the Merchant P. Stoltz Professor of Social Sciences and Professor of Economics at Brown University. Before landing at Brown University, Dr. Lowry served as Professor of Economics at Boston University. He also served at Harvard University where he was the first black tenured professor of economics in the history of Harvard University. Dr. Lowry also happens to be a born again follower of Jesus Christ who holds a biblical worldview and a conservative position as it relates to cultural issues. And so really it goes without saying, Dr. Lowry is a minority in virtually every sense of the term as he comes under constant scrutiny and criticism and even mocking for his beliefs as a follower of Jesus, even as his research and his academic record and his current academic work is some of the most respected in his field in the world. I'm fascinated by Dr. Lowry and his career and his courage to stand in a very difficult environment of higher academia as his beliefs are so often criticized and mocked and belittled. I listened to a fascinating conversation this week between Dr. Lowry and Dr. Albert Moeller, who is the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, one of our denomination's finest institutions. And Dr. La or Dr. Moeller presented a question at the end of this conversation that was so revealing and so eye-opening as it relates to the current cultural climate, specifically as it relates to the college campus and the college faculty. Dr. Muller asked this simple question to Dr. Lowry. You've taught at Harvard, Brown, and many other leading universities. Here's the question. How possible would it be now for someone who's a young Glenn Lowry to be hired to teach at Brown or Harvard, or for that matter, University of Michigan or anywhere else like that. How possible would it be for a young professor with an exceptional resume holding a biblical worldview and conservative beliefs to be hired at one of our finest institutions in the land, here's Dr. Lowry's response. If that person were a professor of English or history or sociology and were trying to get hired, the number would be zero. They would have no chance whatsoever. They would be peripherally excluded. No one would even bother to consider them because it is just beyond the pale. It would just be considered unspeakable. We live in a time in a culture where it is just considered unspeakable 
to hire an individual who is more than qualified if they stand on personal convictions driven by a biblical worldview. That's a sobering reality. You may have never faced any kind of criticism or anyone mocking you or belittling you for your faith, but that's where it is on college campuses all over this country. And that's where it will continue to go in the days ahead, regardless of what takes place on November 3rd. That's where our culture is moving. So here's the question, what do we do with that? We live in a culture that wants to claim that it is tolerant and inclusive when the reality is the only tolerance and inclusivity of our culture is for those who agree with and support what our culture says is acceptable. That's where we are. That's where we find ourselves today. So more and more, that means that our culture is going to be at odds with a biblical Christian faith. What do we do? What do we do when people attack us because they disagree with us or perhaps just push us to the margins because we do not step in line with what the culture says is right, but instead stand on the foundation of what God says is right. What do we do? What do we do when we are slandered or mocked because of what we believe? And even more basic level, how do we respond when someone comes against us or slanders us or gossips about us because they don't agree with a position that we hold? Well, I'm so very grateful for the word of God. I'm so very grateful specifically for the passages of scripture that we are considering today and next Sunday from 1 Peter in this election season that we find ourselves because here in 1 Peter 3 specifically, we see that the scripture is saying the hope of the gospel must be the foundation for the people of God. And when the hope of the gospel is truly our foundation, please hear this, it will allow us and invite us and empower us to respond to our culture in a way that is completely shocking to the world around us when we are attacked or slandered or pushed against. This text says there is a reason for our hope and flowing out of the good news of the gospel that we've been talking about for the last few weeks is our reason for hope, even in uncertainty, even in difficult circumstances, even with so much hostility swirling around us, we stand on this good news of the gospel. And if we do, if we truly do, it will impact the way we interact with others. And so what I wanna do is I wanna just walk back through some of these verses in 1 Peter chapter three this morning and just ask this question, how does our reason for hope impact the way we interact with others? 
And I want to start with this. Number one, our reason for hope impacts the way we treat others in the body of Christ. Our reason for hope impacts the way we treat others in the body of Christ. Go back to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. So look at what the scripture says. As Peter's writing this letter to the church, and he's talking to a church in the midst of a very difficult season culturally, being attacked for their faith, he says, finally, all of you, all of you in the church, all of you who are the people of God, all of you who say you're followers of Jesus, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. As Peter takes us on this journey to recognize how our reason for hope impacts the way we interact with others, he says, let's start with the people of God. Let's start with the church. Certainly our reason for hope should impact the way we interact with other people in the body of Christ. And he lays out these characteristics that are beautiful. These are beautiful characteristics, unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind. Who does not want to be a part of a church that is living this out? That's captivating. That's so inviting. That's so beautiful. To, to see a people that say, we have a unity of mind, even if we disagree, because we're going to disagree on some things. After all, we're all human, but we agree together about what matters most. And we choose to put our mind, our thoughts on the things that matter most instead of dividing over opinion or preference. That, that's what unity of mind is all about. We want to think about unity. He goes on, he says, and this people should have sympathy, sympathy for one another that is genuinely concerned about the other's needs, that is genuinely concerned when a brother or a sister is hurting, wanting to do something to step in where there is a need. He talks about brotherly love, and certainly we know that brothers can fight, right? I mean, I'm the oldest of three boys and we can fight. We're, we're really, really good at it. But brothers stick together. Brothers stand up for one another. Brotherly love is quick to reconcile and forgive. He then says tender hearted. Tender-hearted, someone with a tender heart is kind and compassionate. Someone with a tender heart really is caring and concerned for the needs of another, looking out for others even over and above themselves. And then he says this fifth quality that, honestly, wouldn't it be great if he left it out altogether? At least that's what many in the church have seemed to believe in 2020. A humble mind. What is a humble mind? A humble mind is someone who says, I may know some things, but I don't know everything. 
A humble mind is someone that says, even when I believe I'm right, I'm willing to listen to what you have to say. Because even when I believe I'm right, there's still plenty of room for me to grow. A humble mind is someone who recognizes that they desperately need the grace of God. And so they recognize that when they are wrong, they are quick to repent. And when they are right, they will refuse to be self-righteous because they want to think about others. These qualities are absolutely beautiful. And these qualities are what the church should demonstrate to one another if we truly are standing on what we say is our reason for hope. Our reason for hope should impact the way we interact with one another. But secondly, then the scripture turns and says, let's, let's look at those who perhaps disagree. Let's look at those who, who don't line up with, with what we say to be true. Let's look at those who might even attack us because of what we believe. Our reason for hope, number two, our reason for hope impacts the way we treat those who have wronged us. Look at verse 9, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you are called that you may obtain a blessing. Do not repay evil for evil. The scripture here is saying, this is something that is so countercultural. Please don't miss. You cannot fight sin with sin. Sin is not an excuse to sin. If you have been wronged by someone else's sin, it is not a free pass for you to lash back with sin. If you put sin against sin in a fight, the only possible winner can be sin. And so the scripture is saying, no, no, no. According to the ministry of Jesus, according to what the followers of Christ first heard from Jesus himself, you do not repay evil with evil. You actually do something very different altogether. You bless those who persecute you. You pray for those who've wronged you. And the Apostle Paul picks up on that same theme, Romans 12, verse 14. It's very clear. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. The scripture is showing us a very different way. And then Peter even raises the stakes here in his letter, verse 9, what we just read. He said, you are called to be a blessing. Why? So that you may then obtain a blessing. He's saying the blessing of God is kind of hanging in the balance here. And then he goes on and he quotes from a psalm, Psalm 34. We see this in verses 10 through 12 of 1 Peter 3, if you're tracking with me. He's quoting a direct quote from Psalm 34. Look at what it says here in 1 Peter 3.10. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. 
Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Those are challenging words to hear. But the scripture is saying, look, if you choose to repay evil with evil and to speak deceit instead of pursuing peace with others, you are actually resisting God's blessing in your life. I would go so far as to say, please don't miss this, you are actively working against God's blessing for you. Why does the Bible say this? Why is the Bible so strong on the way we respond when others wrong us or slander us or speak evil or do evil towards us? Why is the Bible so strong on this? Think about this just practically. Put on your practicality hat for just a moment. When you repay evil with evil, when you speak evil or deceit instead of pursuing peace, what are you doing? You are allowing bitterness to grow in your heart. Bitterness is one of the most destructive tools of the enemy of God. Bitterness is that slow IV drip of poison that begins to kill us from the inside out. When bitterness is growing in our heart, we are actively fighting against God's blessing for us. Here's why, because the blessing of God flows to us through forgiveness, right? This is gospel 101, right? We, we respond to the invitation of what Christ has done for us, recognizing as a sinner, we need a savior. We need our sin to be forgiven so that we can be right with God. And as we receive that gift of salvation, we receive the blessing of what God has done for us to invite us into new life, to set us apart as one of his children and to give us a home forevermore. That's the blessing of God. And it flows out of forgiveness. And so if we're actively holding on to bitterness or actively lashing out at those who have wronged us, we are actively resisting the blessing of God. Because the only way you can be free to truly live in the blessing of God is through forgiveness. It is the path to freedom. It is the, the gift that God uses to break through to his blessing. So are you standing on this reason for hope? And if you are, is it really impacting the way you interact with those who have wronged you? Are you receiving the blessing of God or missing it altogether? The third thing we see here, returning to the scripture, verse 13 of 1 Peter 3, our reason for hope impacts the way we make a defense. It impacts the way we present a case. It impacts the way we, we, we might put out our beliefs, the way we make a defense. This is what we see in the scripture, 1 Peter 3, verse 13, where we started today. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? 
But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. The reason for hope that we say is in us should impact the way we make a defense. And verse 13 poses a very interesting question for us. Who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Do you know the answer to that question? The answer to that question is anyone and at the same time, no one. Anyone at any point can attack you for doing what is good out of their own sin, jealousy, pride, envy, covetousness, self-righteousness, Anyone at any point can attack you for doing what is good. But then the scripture wants us to see and understand that even when that attack comes, that attack may sting, that attack may hurt, but that attack cannot destroy what God has done. It's just so incredibly important. Anyone can attack, but no one can destroy what God has done. You remember Romans 8? You may not be familiar with Romans 8. If you're not, I recommend that you read it today before this day is over. It's one of the most important and powerful passages in all of the scripture, unpacking to us what the gospel really is. But look at what it says, beginning in verse 31 of Romans chapter 8. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? For who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, the scripture says. In all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. This is the good news of the gospel. And the scripture is saying when you stand on this hope, and you recognize that even though anyone can attack you at any point, no one can destroy what God has built in you through the gospel. It will change the way you make a defense. What do we see in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 again? What does it say? Always be ready to give a reason for the hope that is in you, Right? Right? What's the end? Go to the next slide. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. The Bible is saying you need to be ready to make a defense. You need to be ready to explain why you believe what you believe. But please don't miss this. The Jesus way is to make a defense without being defensive. According to the word of God, the way hope 
guides us to make a defense is to make a defense without being defensive. And here's why. Because there's a big difference in trying to win an argument and trying to win someone's heart. Very big difference. We have missed this over and over again in 2020. Fellas, let me ask you a question, those of you who are married. Think back to before you were married, when you were falling in love and you were trying to win the heart of that lovely lady that you were falling in love with and then flash forward to a few years after you've been married and y'all are in an argument and you're trying to win the argument and prove that you're right. My hope and prayer is that those two tactics were very different. That when you're trying to win her heart, it better have looked different than when you were just trying to win an argument, right? The same should be said of the church. We're not just here to win an argument. The argument's already been won. And that's what, that's what Peter's saying here. The argument's already been won. You're standing on a reason for hope because the end has already been written. So you're not trying to win an argument. You're trying to win someone's heart that is longing for hope. That's why they're looking at you. That's why they're asking. What is this reason for hope? So you can make a defense without being defensive and thus be inviting to someone who is longing for hope. Finally, we close with this. The fourth thing that I would draw out of this text today, our reason for hope impacts our witness to the world. Our reason for hope impacts our witness to the world. And I see this in 1 Peter 3, specifically verses 16 and 17. Look at what the scripture says. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, because it will happen, when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. What is, people say, what is Peter saying here? Peter is saying, look, people are watching. People are watching. So what are they seeing in the way we're responding when we have been wrong? Because I think anyone who is a follower of Jesus in today's culture in the United States of America could say, we can point to ways we've been wronged. So how are we responding when we have been wrong by a culture that does not believe what we believe? The world is watching. Are we showing them a reason for hope that is beyond anything that this world has to offer? Or are we showing them what they're used to seeing? People lashing out in anger, trying to fight evil with evil. What are we showing them? Our reason for hope impacts our witness to the world. I love this quote from Warren Wearsby in his commentary on 1 Peter, specifically chapter 3. This is what he writes. When Jesus Christ is Lord of our lives, look at this, each crisis becomes an opportunity for witness. Every Christian should be able to give a reasoned defense for 
for his hope in Christ, especially in hopeless situations. A crisis creates the opportunity for witness when the believer believes with faith and hope because the unbelievers will then sit up and take notice. That's a powerful statement. And here's what I would ask. Is it true of you if you say you follow Jesus? Are people noticing a reason for hope that is different than what they see in the world and the culture around them? Because I want you to know, I look out at our nation. Right now, I look out at our nation and I conclude, this may shock you, I conclude This is a beautiful gift to be a follower of Jesus Christ in the church of Jesus Christ in the United States of America right now, right now. Do you know why I say that? Because the culture around us is crying out for hope. The culture around us is saying, please, someone save us. I'm gonna vote for this person so they'll save me. I'm gonna line up with this political persuasion so they'll save me. I'm gonna go with this act of social justice so they'll save me. I'm gonna hope that there's economic reform so they'll save me. I'm looking for hope. Someone save me. And someone please bring us together because we're more divided than ever. Please bring us together. And as a follower of Jesus Christ, I know that there is one who will save you. And there is one who will unify you with God's people. His name is Jesus. What an opportunity. What an opportunity we have been given for such a time as this to live in such a way that we point our world, our culture right now around us to the reason for hope that we have because of what Christ has done. Will the watching world see the hope of Jesus Christ alive in the church. Especially between now and November 3rd. What will the world see from the church? Because what I read in scripture shows me that on November 4th, my God is still in control. On November 4th, I still have a reason for hope. On November 4th, the end of the story has still been written and it shows me as a follower of Jesus that I stand in victory, victory now and victory forevermore regardless of who's in the White House. So let's stand on what we say we believe and let's show the world that there is something greater, something greater that is found in the hope that comes through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let me pray for us as we close. Oh, Father, you have 
been so good to us. So gracious and kind. So merciful and patient. And I pray, Lord God, oh, I pray, Lord God, that you would give us the faith to stand in confidence on what you have revealed to us as your church through the good news of what Jesus Christ has done. The typical way to look at an election is to look at an election concerned, fearful, worried about what may happen, worried about what the other side may do. At the same time, there are many who look at election thinking, maybe this will finally be the one that'll change things. Maybe this will finally be the one that'll, that'll grant me what my heart has been longing for in this nation. Maybe this will be the time that finally we come together in this beautiful utopia. Yet to be frustrated again. And so, Lord, I pray specifically for your church right now as I close this time. I pray for your church that we will look at this election through the lens of witness. That we would look at this as a God-ordained, God-appointed, divine opportunity to be a witness for the reason, for the hope that we have because of Christ Jesus. Lord, give us eyes to see a culture that is crying out for hope and give us confidence to stand and to speak as a witness of one who is not just seeking to win an argument, but is seeking to win the heart of one who is longing for hope. Please use us to that end. Oh, how we need you. Oh, how we trust you and oh how we recognize that our only hope is you and so I pray that you would give us the faith to stand in that hope that it might impact the way we interact with others and glorify your name and Lord I pray finally For anyone who is listening to this message today, who is longing for hope that has never experienced the beautiful gift of hope that comes through the gift of salvation found in Jesus Christ our Lord, I pray that today would be the day as they listen to this, that they recognize in their heart of hearts they need a savior. They need true hope, not only today, but forevermore. And so I pray, Lord, that they in faith would just whisper a prayer that says, Jesus, I need you. I am ready to follow you. Be the hope of my life that I have so longed for. 
forgive me of my sins. For the path of God's blessing comes through forgiveness. I trust in you. Oh, how we praise you for the gift of salvation. We love you, Lord. May you be glorified in us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.